G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. But we're also introducing into our conversation from this point forward and talking about the persecution of Christian believers. And uh, we're going to cast our vision across the seas to the Middle East and issues that are going on in the Middle Eastern nation of Turkey. Elizabeth Kendall, religious liberty analyst, and you'll know Elizabeth as one of our regular contributors when it comes to issues of persecution of Christian believers, with a focus on so many different nations around the world, and we are always astounded by Elizabeth's capacity to be able to understand what's going on behind the scenes in so many issues, whether it be war uh, or whether it be issues of Christian persecution. Well, we're going to talk about Turkey today, and you might like to join in our conversation, one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. particularly uh, you might like to contribute on ways that you believe uh, we in Australia can have any level of impact, and it may even be uh, to the point of being on our knees in prayer for brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing uh, dreadful persecution issues. Uh, let's welcome our guest, Elizabeth Kendall. Welcome back to 2020. Oh, thank you, Neil. Elizabeth, always so glad to get your insights. And uh, on a topic like talking about another nation that's not always front of mind for us, talking about the nation of Turkey, uh, we're not always necessarily equipped uh, to make great input because uh, it's not in our neck of the woods. But when we appreciate that brothers and sisters in Christ are undergoing dreadful levels of persecution, uh, then it becomes part of our sphere of understanding and really a responsibility comes on our shoulders uh, to understand what's going on and to take whatever action we can. What is the big issue with Turkey today? Well, um, I, and I'd, just, I'd just like to add to what you say there. It's not even just that Turkey's not in our neck of the woods, but Turkey is a member of NATO and it's a US ally. It's part of what I refer to as the US Turkey, Saudi, Arab, Sunni axis uh, in the Middle East. So um, it, it, it's, it's sort of protected in terms of our, the media coverage that comes to us. Um, so we don't hear a lot. We don't hear about a lot about what's going on because Turkey needs to stay in the good books to some extent. Elizabeth, it, well, just, just, to, just to add to what you're saying there and just to clarify something, because when we talk about Turkey being an ally, uh, a part of NATO, an ally of the US, that means that Turkey is our ally as well. Uh, yes, yes, it's all part of the the same sort of uh, friendship group, I guess, and that can have an impact on what sort of news is reported. So that can make it very difficult for news to get out into our into our mainstream media. And you know, some of this news you have to go and seek after, and, and it's the sort of news that I will prioritise when I'm writing my prayer bulletins because it's, it doesn't make the media... So the, the issue at the moment is, um, uh, well, I think one thing that has made the media is Turkey's 
the, reignition, the reignition of the Turkish uh, war against the Kurds uh, inside Turkey. Um, now, it's much worse than what has been on the media. I have seen only limited uh, news on the war inside Turkey. But the main sort of Kurdish capital in Turkey, which is the city of Diyarbakir in, the, in southeast Turkey, um, that has been really heavily shelled and has been the, the site of some really fierce fighting between the Turkish army and, and the Kurds. And... Um, in, in that, on the eastern fringe of the city of Diyarbakir is a historic area, World Heritage listed area called Sur District, S-U-R, and um, uh, the, the uh, Turkish government has shelled it very, very heavily and has now um, expelled all, all the residents and uh, acquired uh, um, 6,300 plots of land and six churches. Uh, that includes, rather, six churches. Now, some of these churches are really significant. And uh, there's a real fear that the government... Um, the government is saying that they are going to redevelop Sur District. You know, it's been shelled and they're going to rebuild it. But most of the, the, uh, the Christians and the Kurds that have been expelled really doubt that they're going to be allowed to go back. They, they believe it's probably been ethnically cleansed. And the even greater fear is that the government's going to come in with the bulldozers and bulldoze everything. And this is really going to be a case of uh, cultural, uh, cultural genocide, you know, cultural destruction. So some of these churches that they've seized, you know, they are thousands, uh, well, one of them is 1,700 years old. And another one is, uh, has just been recently renovated and reopened. So... The Serp Girgos Church or Saint uh, Girgos Church, Armenian Apostolic Church, fell into disrepair after the Armenian genocide. It's the largest uh, Armenian church or cathedral in the whole of the Middle East. And it fell into disrepair after the genocide. But in, in the last decade, the Kurds agreed that it should be renovated. And they allowed the um, Armenian diaspora and the local Armenians to raise funds and renovate this cathedral. And it was reopened in October 2011. And it's now become a real central focal point of the Armenian communities, uh, not just locally, but uh, it's, like a, it's like a place of pilgrimage. And even more than that, it's awakened um, a sense of real pride in a lot of people who are aware that their ancestors were Armenian Christians but had been killed in the genocide. Uh, their grandparents were raised as orphan children and they were Islamized and Kurdified or Turkified. And these, what they call hidden Armenians, are coming back to their Armenian roots, mainly through this incredible, spectacularly beautiful church. And this is one of the churches that the government has now appropriated. So there's a lot of concern about what's actually going on in Turkey. When you talk about the Armenian genocide, we're talking back a century, aren't we? Yep. Because it was around the time that uh, that our troops were arriving on the shores of Gallipoli. And just after that, uh, the Armenian genocide began. And, uh, and you're concerned that perhaps the Armenian genocide has never actually ended. 
Oh, well, I think that that would be uh, very definitely the case. I mean, cities like Adirbakir, the population of Christians has just continuously declined. So there was, they were almost completely wiped out during the Armenian Genocide, which claimed the lives of about half a million Greeks, about 750,000 Assyrians, and 1.5 million Armenians uh, in the space of a couple of years. Um, and, and that's not even including those who, um, who, who left on foot and managed to get out alive and were expelled. Um, uh, the whole of Anatolia was ethnically cleansed and religiously cleansed at that time. So there was a, a little remnant that was left. There were a number of what they call now call hidden Armenians. So that is main, mainly the orphan children of Armenian Christian parents who were slaughtered or who starved to death um, as they were being marched out of Anatolia. And these orphans were then taken into Muslim families, given new names, uh, Islamized and raised as Kurdish or Turkish Muslims. And uh, a lot of them are are looking into their ancestry and realizing where they've come from. In fact, church leaders believe there could be as many as half a million hidden Armenians inside Turkey. And this is really quite astounding. And, you know, the, the renovation and reopening of Sirp Girgos or St. Saint, Girgos Saint in Diyarbakir has been a focal point uh, with many Armenians and causing a, a, a real pride in Armenian heritage and culture and their cultural roots in, this, in southeastern Turkey, the, in what was the upper reaches of the Fertile Crescent and Upper Mesopotamia. And um, it's really, I'm fi I find this really a serious and very distressing thing that's happening today uh, in Turkey. We'll continue our conversation talking about Turkey today. Uh, we are taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Uh, let's hear from Ray in Tasmania. Hi, Ray. Welcome along to 2020. Uh, hi, Neil. I'm just uh, ringing about the abortion issue. Okay. And my my wife and I, Penny and I, uh, going before the courts in Tasmania on the 16th of June, and I'm um, just the importance of uh, supporting the lawyers. There's a law firm in Queensland called DL Legal, who has been backing us all the way pro bono to defend us in the Tasmanian Magistrates Court to help us because we demonstrated outside the abortion clinic. In Hobart. Ray, just great getting a little update from you and certainly uh, to give a little plug to the law firm that's been supporting you is just so important and uh, I know you're responding to uh, what Wendy Francis was saying a little earlier about the possibility of a new bill being introduced into the Queensland Parliament tomorrow that might make abortion laws the same level as they are in Tasmania where you are and uh, just for listeners uh, catching up on your story and Ray certainly I appreciate you calling in and uh, and just uh, mentioning this and just how important it is because uh, listeners may not be aware uh, that uh, you and your wife Penny uh, made a decision to stand for the unborn uh, on street corners in Tasmania alongside Graham Preston and uh, Graham who's been jailed six times 
because he has stood for the rights of the unborn. And uh, you very courageously, with your wife Penny, stood alongside Graham and uh, rain, hail or shine, and uh, you yourself were arrested and uh, and even uh, potentially facing either a heavy fine or jail. So, uh, uh, Ray, did you say the 16th of June was the, the time when uh, your next court appearance? Yes, the 16th of June. Um, it's an actual irony that it was supposed to be the 11th of this month, but it was changed because of a case with Bob Brown Um, taking his case to the High Court because he's protesting against logging. But he's um, appealing on the grounds of freedom of political speech. And so our lawyers representing us uh, submitted to the magistrate that she might be interested on the outcome of that case as it affects our case. So it's an irony that um, Bob Brown's case... Um, intersects with ours. Yes, and uh, Ray, thank you so much for the update on that. And and I know that there'll be people around the nation listening into our conversation today, keeping you in their prayers as they are Graham Preston, and of course you and your wife Penny, who have courageously stood alongside him there. Uh, Ray, thanks for the update on that, and of course the importance and the seriousness of standing uh, in so far as these Queensland laws go, making those. Uh, uh, those communications to local MPs in Queensland will be important to happen today. Not to wait and think about it, but actually to do that today. Ray from Tasmania, thanks so much for your update. Thank you. Uh, we are talking through a whole bunch of issues today and a focus on the nation of Turkey. And uh, Ray commenting on a conversation we had a little earlier with Wendy Francis from the Australian Christian Lobby. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest this hour, and we're talking about persecution of Christian believers. We're talking about some developments in Turkey, which mean our focus on Turkey needs to be sustained. Uh, The idea of Turkey now seizing Christian churches, Uh, the idea of an ongoing genocide against a people whether they be Kurdish or Armenian, and as we reflect on a 100 years since the start of the Armenian genocide, Elizabeth Kendall, as we continue this conversation talking about Turkey, Turkey seizing some very prominent churches, and here in Australia even a 200-year-old church would be old for us, but it's hard to imagine a church that's over a 1,000 years old and holding such significance, Uh, but to have those churches seized, and as I understand it, the possibility of even those churches being turned into mosques, uh, that's something that ought to aggrieve every Christian believer. Uh, exactly. And then, you know, how is this different to what's happening in ISIS territory, where ISIS seizes the churches and bulldozes them to the ground and, and destroys the cultural heritage of, of the people that they want to be rid of? Um, I, I consider it a very, very serious thing. So, you know, Turkey already has the, the smallest Christian population of any of the states in the Middle East. And that's because of the, the genocide that took place, you know, from 1915. Uh, there's a remnant of about 2,000 Greeks and about 80,000 Armenian and Assyrian Christians there today. Uh, so it's a very small community. And a and 100 years ago, a lot of these cities, a city like Diyarbakir, were majority Christian. Just 100 years ago, before the genocide, that, uh, Diyarbakir was majority Christian. So, you know, this is really a serious thing. And and the Christians that have been leaving 
uh, over the last, you know, say, several decades. They're leaving because of not massacres and pogroms, but perpetual deprivation and hardship. You know, they're deprived of their churches. So another thing that Turkey does is that it, it seized lots and lots of churches and Christian properties during, during the genocide, and it's never returned them. Some of them have, have been turned into mosques. Uh, some have been destroyed. But most of them sit there in, in a state of decay because that sends a very powerful message. It sends a powerful message that Islam has conquered Christianity and Christianity is now just in a state of decay until it dies or, or is dying, and, and, and this is a symbol of it. So there are very old historic churches in Turkey that are now uh, being used as uh, stables for animals or <laughs> sports centres for youths who are allowed to go and train in, inside them or um, you know, they're just squats for drug addicts but uh, they're kept there as a, as a perpetual sign of, uh, of Islam's victory over Christianity and the Christians make a regular appeals to the government to have these churches restored to Christian ownership and the government just says no. And uh, even right up to this day, they are still uh, converting churches into mosques. Uh, there have been two cases in, in the last uh, little while of uh, there's two churches with the name Hagia Sophia uh, that have been turned into mosques in recent years. And the third church... The Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, or what used to be called Constantinople, uh, you know, the calls to have that actually opened as a mosque get louder every day. And as I mentioned in my prayer bulletin last year, the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople saw its first Quran reading uh, indoors in 85 years. Uh, there, there's a lot of pressure on the government, and the government is very keen, it's just deciding whether it can do it or not, to actually reopen the Hagia Sophia or the Church of Holy Wisdom as a mosque. And these sorts of things, you know, they're not the violent pogroms that get the attention of journalists. They're just, they're just things that force Christians to leave. They just say, well... Why live here, you know, when I can go and live in Armenia or I can go and live in, in, in Europe somewhere? And they leave. They leave for America and Australia and they get they leave for better lives. But for every time they more leave, um, the remnant, you know, is depleted and, and their ability to hold on to their heritage and their culture is diminished. And I really have fears for the future of Christianity in Turkey at this point. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. We are talking through issues to do with the nation of Turkey this hour. Our special guest is religious liberty analyst Elizabeth Kendall and taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Elizabeth, let's uh, take a call from uh, a listener or two. Robin is in Mount Morgan. Hi, Robin. Welcome along. Yes, hi. Um, I'm totally with uh, Elizabeth Kendall on, on this issue and I'm very concerned. Turkey is not just an unrelated issue to us because mm-hmm. um, it is... This is, it's not just their desire to take over the world, it's their mandate. 
the Muslims, every time they plant a mosque anywhere, anywhere in the world, they claim that territory for Allah. And they are continually pressing out and pressing out to take over the whole world. And I'm not being light about this. I've just read something recently about Germany because I've had a lot to do with Germany. I mean, every time I've been to Germany, I've run into Turks everywhere. There are Turkish, uh, Turkish people there. And what it, the article I read was, um, I think it was Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, um, somebody in politics anyway, was uh, trying to bring in laws against uh, these mullahs coming in. I don't know what they call er elsewhere, but... Yeah. Yeah, these Muslim leaders are being sent by Erdogan. Erdogan is sending um, so many, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of these Muslim teachers to Germany that don't even speak German. And so these uh, Angela, who, or whoever it is, has been trying to bring in laws in Germany where uh, everyone who comes into the country like that must learn German, must go to uh, German classes, and they're trying to... Um, bring in laws to make them integrate in society. And Erdogan, who's the leader of Turkey, is doing exactly the opposite. He's sending in there and he's ordering them not to, not to make friends, not to integrate into German society. And uh, they, are, they, they are planning to take over the world. There's, I can't say that more seriously enough. You know, people are just need to wake up. It's not just over there. In other countries, it's going to come here. We have already tasted a little of it here, but it's coming. Because everywhere they put mosques, they mark that territory as theirs. Robin, interesting thoughts in all of that. Uh, your response, Elizabeth Kendall. Oh, that's absolutely right. And I read that article and I just sort of thought, I thought, you know, trying to, trying to make a law to control this situation... Now, I thought, oh, they're so far behind the game. It's sort of, it's like chasing your tail. I mean, good luck with that one. When you've got so many uh, Turks and now so many Muslims, to, to tell them that they have to have, a, have to have a special European version of Islam, they're not going to, they're not going to be able to convince them to do that. They're going to, they, they'll start riots. It's just going to be absolutely, absolutely disastrous. Saudi Arabia, it was mentioned in the same uh, article, it has uh, offered to pay for the funding of the building of 200 mosques in Germany. Uh, so yeah, it's very, very serious. I think um, Europe is in a very, very serious place right now. And, and this is one of the things, actually, what, another thing that uh, Robin was saying is that um, uh, it re relates to my, my new book that will be coming out in the next uh, month or so. I make the point right uh, in the blurb on the back cover that uh, Western, Westerners, including, you know, policymakers and journalists, need to start listening to the Christians of the Middle East. They need to start listening to them. And more than that, they need to start believing them because at the moment they don't do either. They need to listen and they need to believe them because their plight prefigures our own plight. Uh, what's happening to the Christians of the Middle East is going to happen to the Christians of Europe in time. Maybe not tomorrow, but, you know, within this generation, I would imagine. We have to start listening and we have to start believing the Christians of the Middle East and not just brushing them off as uh, sort of uh, Islamophobic dinosaurs that don't know what they're talking about. They know exactly what they're talking about. They live it. Robin from Mount Morgan, thank you so much for good input today here on 2020. Our talkback line is open on 1800 316 316. Uh, let's hear from Chris in Victoria. Hi, Chris. Welcome along to 2020. 
Good morning, Neil and Elizabeth. Yeah, it's no surprise Turkey is becoming more and more Islamic and the fervour uh, is rising because, you know, they're going to be a, a major player in the end time prophecy, a, a major player in Gog Magog. And if anyone wants, uh, you know, evidence of Turkey uh, rising up, you want, you want to get a video called End Time Eyewitness by Joel Richardson. And he describes the uh, worship of Erdogan and the the national, you know, the patriotic fervor is something to Nazi like Germany. So, you know. Uh, Chris, let's get some thoughts from Elizabeth Kendall. Elizabeth. Yeah, well, uh, Erdogan is often mocked um, and people mock him and joke about him as the sultan, a wannabe sultan. In fact, he appeared on the front cover of The Economist magazine in, I think it was 2014 or it might have been 2013, in full sultan regalia. Um, and uh, but it's not even just a joke. He he has actually tried to uh, reanimate the uh, Ottoman language, which was pretty much a dead language. Uh, he's um, he's been photographed with uh, like Ottoman uh, troops in full Ottoman era regalia. Uh, in I think it was 2014, with the with the Gezi Park riots, where young people were protesting the government's plans to bulldoze the last green area in Istanbul uh, because they wanted to build a Ottoman-era barracks there, uh, you know, just as a museum type of thing, to, for the glories of the Ottoman era. So I routinely refer to the current government as a neo-Ottoman government, and it absolutely is. Uh, they have very, very serious designs uh, about... Um, uh, spreading their influence over every area that was once the part of the Ottoman Empire. So that, that includes, this is why I'm also concerned about not just Nagorno-Karabakh, which is uh, an autonomous region uh, in uh, Azerbaijan, but uh, Armenia itself. Armenia is blockaded by two Turkic countries, Turkey, uh, on one Turkey to the west and Azerbaijan on the, on the east. And both these countries actually talk about how they would like to wipe Armenia off the map. Uh, Turkey, uh, in a neo-Ottoman capacity, is expanding itself in, into the Islamic State. They talk about being anti-Islamic anti State, but if Saudi Arabia is the mother of Islamic State, having given birth to this sort of Wahhabist uh, uh, revival, then Turkey is the father of Islamic State. They have, uh, they have done more than any other state on the planet to create the situation that now exists. Elizabeth, we'll have to uh, cut in here. We're about to go to news and continuing okay. our conversation after the news. Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. Thanks so much to Chris from Victoria for your call. 1-800-316-316. We're talking about the nation of Turkey and the persecution of Christian believers. Our special guest this hour talking through these issues is religious liberty analyst Elizabeth Kendall. Elizabeth uh, is already well known for her book called Turn Back the Battle. Isaiah speaks to Christians today. She has a new book that is about to be released. It's called 
After Saturday comes Sunday, understanding the Christian crisis in the Middle East. Well, we're focusing in on the Christian crisis in the Middle East, talking through all sorts of issues. Turkey escalating its military campaign against the Kurds and its covert campaign against the remaining uh, Greeks and Armenian and Assyrian Christian communities. We're talking about churches being seized. We're talking about the idea of changing churches into mosques. Or 1-800-316-316 if you'd like to join in our conversation. Uh, Elizabeth, let's take a call straight away from Darren in Underwood in Queensland. Hello, Darren. Welcome along to 2020. Yeah, thanks, Neil. How are you this afternoon? I'm very well, thank you, Darren. And uh, what are your thoughts on Turkey and these issues we're talking about today, Christian persecution? Yeah, it's um, certainly uh, very challenging to um, the Christian world. Um, I saw something this morning on a German news channel, um, refugees from Syria, um, and the, this German channel is uh, training some of the people within this refugee camp, which is in Turkey, um, to uh, report stories from the refugee camp, um, which has a lot of uh, refugees from um, Lebanon and Syria. Yep. Uh, and it was interesting to note that a lot of them had um, Christian T-shirts on, uh, with scriptures on okay. <laughs> the, the people they were filming. Um, but looking at, uh, and it was on the news because uh, it appears that Turkey's not doing a lot to protect these refugees who are under rocket fire from Syria um, and being killed since January this year. But um, when you look at um, Turkey, its historical sort of perspective, mm. it's, um, it was the capital of the Rome, last part of the Roman Empire to fall. And it was, and it's also today um, a unique nation because it's linked to Europe, Asia, and uh, the Middle East. It's got a, a part of its country in each of those areas, and probably the nation that can uh, have the most influence with Israel, I, I believe. Um, which, uh, with the goings on there now, um, I think uh, we certainly need to be praying for the Christians there. Yep. And, Darren, let's um, get some thoughts from Elizabeth Kendall on some of those things that you're sharing and yeah. uh, the idea that Turkey's not looking after uh, refugees uh, that are on Turkish soil in perhaps uh, the way we might hope that they would. Uh, Elizabeth yeah. Kendall, your thoughts on what Darren's sharing? Well, Turkey has literally created this situation Uh, Apart from the fact that uh, the uh, Turkey-Saudi Arab axis was really the reason why we have a war in Syria today, and now we have all these refugees, and Turkey is actually funneling them into Europe. Uh, And what Turkey has created here is a situation now where they have all the leverage. They hold all the cards. And in March this year, Turkey was able to go to Germany and broker a deal with Germany that basically, basically said, you know, Germany, uh, Europe is now going to uh, have to give uh, Turkish people, Turkish citizens, uh, visa-free access in Europe. Uh, Germany has also promised $6 billion to Turkey over the next, I think it's six years, or it might be, I don't know, it might be four years. Uh, They've also promised to fast-track Turkish accession into the European Union, something Turkey should not even be eligible for because it doesn't even meet the most basic 
uh, requirements. But all this is being fast-tracked in exchange for Turkey controlling the flow of migrants. And I tell you, Europe is so desperate at the moment that I, I anticipate, I believe that Turkey will be able to get away with just about anything uh, and do just about anything because Europe is so desperate to have that, that flow, the pipeline of, of migrants uh, turned off. And I believe that Europe will not say no to Turkey because Turkey will just open the spigot again and have the migrants flooding in at the, at the rate of, I think it was about 10,000 a day or, or more at one point. So they've got Europe over a barrel and they know it. And, um, you know, Europe said you'll have to change your terrorism laws. And Turkey just came straight back and said, well, we're not going to. And I think this is the reality of the situation now. And Turkey has created this situation. And they're going to play it for all it's worth. It's a very, very serious situation. Not only for Europe, but for the Christians of Turkey. Because it's like they now have no protection. They have no protection. No one in Europe can say to Turkey... Uh, you have to have better human rights. Uh, you have to have better religious freedom or you'll never get European Union membership because that's going to be off the table now. The only thing Europe wants is the flow of migrants to be stemmed. Thank you to Darren from Underwood in Queensland. And our talkback line remains open on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. If you'd like to have your say, we're talking about persecuted Christians. A focus today on the nation of Turkey and uh, all of the different uh, facets of what can be talked about with regards to some things uh, that are happening with Islam in Turkey. And, you know, Elizabeth Kendall, I was just reading an article uh, just a couple of hours ago uh, where President Erdogan was complaining about the attacks uh, of ISIS on Turkish soil. Uh, you've just said Turkey is the cause of all this in the first place. There does seem to be so much contradiction in, in the media and the sorts of things that people are reading. Oh, yes, absolutely. And it's a total mess. It's like a spider's web. And there are, you know, there are situations where countries use groups as proxies, um, and things can get very, very messy. So, yeah, it's, nothing's very clear, but Turkey is absolutely the primary state sponsor of ISIS. ISIS would not exist in Mesopotamia today were it not for Turkish support. And, you know, Joseph Biden, even uh, the vice president of America, made this comment recently. He was giving a lecture in a big American university, the Kennedy School of Politics, I think, or something like that, and he was asked a question about the Middle East. And he said, you know, the biggest problem uh, over there, the biggest problem is our, there are, it's our allies. And he said, you know, Turkey, they've been so keen to overthrow Assad that they've been pouring arms and money and tanks and weapons, you name it. They've been pouring it into anyone who'll fight the Assad government. And what that's meant has been they've been pouring it into al-Qaeda and Jabhat al-Nusra and all these jihadist groups. He said the biggest problem's been our allies. And uh, he was forced to apologise to... Uh, he named, I think, Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia and Turkey, and he was forced to apologise to all of them, make a, a formal apologies. But what he said was dead right, was absolutely true. I want to invite listeners to participate in our conversation. You might have your own thoughts on Australia. 
and what connection or what ramifications there might be according to what the rest of the world is doing in their response to a lot of these issues to do with the spread of Islam and the manoeuvrings of nations like Turkey. Well, 1-800-316-316. Elizabeth Kendall, as I understand it, Turkey is rewriting history, rewriting educational materials. What are the sorts of things they would be trying to achieve in doing that? Well, in the lead-up to the centenary of the Armenian genocide, um, uh, a researcher by the name of Tanner Akem uh, decided he would have a little look at the, at the history books that are being used in Turkish schools. And he was absolutely mortified. So this was uh, December... He wrote his article or his report in December 2014. So this was just a couple of months, uh, three months before or four months before the centenary, the 100-year anniversary of the Armenian Genocide, which was commemorated uh, on, I think, the 24th of April uh, 2015. And he was absolutely mortified. And he points out that education is centralised in Turkey. So schools don't decide what texts they use. The government tells them what texts they're going to use. So the texts are indicative of government policy. Every text that is used in Turkish schools has been approved by the government. And he said at every single level, the history books talk about the Armenian genocide in completely foreign terms. So they talk about the Armenian problem and how the Armenians were like a fifth column who betrayed the Turkish people and, and were easily deceived by our enemies and were used by our enemies as a weapon against us. Uh, the, the, the school texts uh, say things like um, that while our brave Turkish soldiers were out fighting for the motherland, Armenians were going around killing vulnerable Turkish women and children. And it says, um, uh, you know, that they are a fifth element, that they are danger. Uh, all the, and then it, it lists a number of the pogroms where, you know, Armenians were massacred. And instead of referring to them as massacres, it refers to them as Armenian rebellions that had to be put down. And this, this is from, like, primary school right through to the senior secondary school. And the, the kids not only learn this, they have to do homework on it. So they have to do homework... They had to do uh, assignments uh, answering questions like, considering that the Armenian problem is all these, these things, what should an, a good Turkish citizen do and what should the country do about the Armenian problem? And they have to write essays on this. Right. And as far as... And I remember when I first read that report uh, in December 2014, I thought... He is laying the ground uh, to, for the final solution. <laughs> I, I couldn't see it any other way. He's preparing to deal with unfinished business. He is laying the ground, preparing the stage for a final solution, a final ethnic cleansing of, of Armenians and Greeks and Assyrians from Turkey. And I'm, I'm really genuinely concerned about this. And, you know, I see the, the appropriation of churches in this, in this context, um, you know, this is just going to drive more Assyrians out. And it's, it's almost like a bloodless coup. You know, I haven't heard anything in the secular media about the Turkish government acquiring these churches, including the largest Armenian church in the Middle East. 
So the government that committed the Armenian genocide has just acquired the largest Armenian church in the Middle East. Hasn't made the news, but it will drive hundreds and maybe thousands of Armenians out of Turkey. They'll just leave. They'll just leave. Elizabeth, I want to move towards uh, a connection to Australia and the sorts of lessons that we need to be aware of in Australia where we see these things happening in an international context. Uh, When you've got uh, Turkey rewriting educational material, uh, rewriting history, and that would be a standard form of propaganda to uh, to uh, bring an, a, a, like a nationalism, a, a nation together uh, to, in fact, incite some level of uh, distrust towards people who the authorities would like to perceive as enemies. And you're yeah. saying the enemies are uh, these Christian peoples. Yeah. Uh, so you've got Islam who paints Christians as enemies. Uh, is there a lesson for us in Australia to uh, to take on board uh, to to know this this sort of thing is happening overseas. Well, I think there are actually lots of lessons that we can take from not just from Turkey but from the whole of the persecuted church. I think I think if we keep ourselves as a Western church or just say as an Australian church, if we keep ourselves sort of separate from the global body of Christ, it's very easy to lose sight of the fact that we are called to be bearers of the cross and the thing that unites us all as christians is the cross and the fact that we are cross bearers and cross carriers now we might not be getting asked to carry a very heavy cross at this point in time but i think the cross is going to get heavier and heavier here in australia we had a caller earlier in this hour talk about you know being arrested for basically standing for righteousness Now, we're going to hear more and more about this. Um, There have been more cases here in Victoria of families literally being uh, put into a position where they were forced to withdraw their children from state schools because of the the bullying uh, that came upon their children in class at the behest of teachers because they were Christians. And uh, in one case, uh, the child was asked to stand up and give an account of herself because she couldn't support same-sex marriage. And this poor kid, you know, a 13-year-old girl, uh, as soon as she said she was a Christian, apparently there was jeering in the classroom, you know, or bleep and bleep and Christians, and all this stuff was coming out, and the teacher never stopped it. And we're going to, and so the parents have taken her out of that school. They're going to find a Catholic or Christian school to put her in, even though they believe they really can't afford it. I had to do the same thing actually with my own daughter, um, and that was a number of years ago now. But it's getting worse, much, much worse. I really feel for our young people now, um, and we. I think the more we can as a church be engaged with the persecuted. Be, um, be involved in aid and advocacy for the persecuted and every single week in our churches be praying for the persecuted specifically, uh, which is what I do with my prayer board and I try to be very, very specific um, so that we really get to understand what's going on because it helps us see that we are part of, we are part of a suffering body and when persecution comes to us, we're a little bit more prepared for it and we're not shocked, we're not taken surprise. We realise that we're standing not on our own but with thousands and millions actually of believers all around the world who are suffering. 
So it's a really, really important thing for us to be doing now. <laughs> Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst, our guest. We're talking about the nation of Turkey. We're talking about the ramifications and what lessons you learn here in Australia when you hear of the sorts of persecution issues that are going on overseas. Elizabeth, let's take a call. John is in WA. Hi, John. Welcome along. Yeah, how you going? Um, I'm from Beverly in WA, and I've just been listening to the show, and I can't help thinking, but in the book of Acts, uh, this Christians have been persecuted for centuries now. And in the book of Acts, the, I think it was the Romans that were coming down and the people voluntarily surrendered up their property because they had better and lasting things in God. And I just wonder whether we're overlooking God's view on all this. What is his view on people being persecuted? It's been going on for a long time and that's an example of it in there. Uh, absolutely. Were, uh, John, let's get some thoughts from Elizabeth Kendall on that. Uh, yeah. You know, it was different for uh, for people in the Book of Acts to what we feel like we experience in Australia, Elizabeth. Uh, well, I think, um, I think, well, Jesus said you will be persecuted. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you, uh, which, is, which we see is, is uh, the reality. And that's a reality, but that doesn't mean it's a good thing or an acceptable thing. It's also something we can learn from and grow through, but still sin is sin. And evil, uh, evil acts done against God's people is something really grievous in God's sight. And uh, we need to do everything we can as a body to help those who are suffering and those who are being persecuted. And that's one way that we can show to the world what it means to be a Christian. Uh, by, by, uh, by our fruits we will be known and by our love for one another we will not only be known but we will show that Jesus Christ is Lord. John from WA, thanks so much for your input today here on 2020. Running out of time, Elizabeth Kendall, I uh, wanted to just uh, get you to give your insight. Uh, an election's been called on the weekend. There'll be some of the minor parties and micro parties, those with Christian foundations, who will have a fairly uh, a fairly hard-nosed uh, look and uh, view and policy structure when it comes to issues of Islam and those sorts of things. Uh, any thoughts on, on how things might unfold and if there uh, should be any sp- particular pressure applied uh, during an election campaign? What are your thoughts? Um, well, I, I think it's good to have a, you know, a good look at the, the moral policies of our political parties. Things have changed in, in the last generation. Things have the, the social issues and the moral issues have really come to the fore in a way that uh, they weren't so much maybe even just 20 years ago. Um, and, and foreign policy, it's, you know, to what extent is our government prepared to actually stand for persecuted Christians overseas, like the Assyrian people in Iraq and, and the Assyrians and Armenians and those in, in, in Turkey and Syria... Um, at the moment, none of our politicians are, or none of our main political parties are very interested at all, which is why it's so, I believe, so important, at least in the Senate, to make sure there are going to be voices who you can absolutely trust will keep the plight of Christians and the religious freedom of Christians in, in Australia uh, on the agenda. So we have to vote very intelligently and very carefully, I believe. It's not a, it's not a small thing. 
So it's a matter of uh, checking the policies of all the parties that you Absolutely. can and become aware of who is standing for what because I suspect the major parties will be tiptoeing around the edges on some of these issues and trying to be nice to everyone. It's all politics, yes, that's right, and not offending anyone and, and making sure you don't get the media offside. But yes, the thing to do is to get onto the website and have a look at the at, look at the platforms, particularly of some of the smaller parties and those who are running for Senate seats. And, and uh, you know, if we can make sure that we have some people in Parliament who are at least going to keep putting the, the Christian issues on the on the agenda that's really important and i think for christians christians should be regularly writing to their local mps uh, and uh, just constantly letting their local mp know that they care about these issues uh, that's a really really important thing to do well elizabeth time has run out we mentioned a little earlier your new book is about to be released and could be around about a month away it's called after Saturday comes Sunday, understanding the Christian crisis in the Middle East. And I think we should uh, diarise a date and get together and have a chat about your new book when it uh, is about to be released so that uh, people will be able to get a hold of it uh, and uh, we'll talk through those issues. So also, uh, you know, just to mention uh, that you're uh, a part of the, uh, the organisation there in the uh, study of Islam and other other faiths at the Melbourne School of Theology. Uh, Research Fellow, I think you're called. Is that the case? That's right. And uh, so uh, certainly the Melbourne School of Theology to uh, to take uh, undertake some studies when it comes to these important issues. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, I'll point people to your Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin. Uh, simply Google Elizabeth Kendall, K-E-N-D-A-L, and you'll find lots of resources there that you can access, and particularly when it comes to how to pray about these very difficult issues. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us again today on 2020. And thank you for the opportunity, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.